The Renegade Aviator, David Costa. Oh, oh, update away, I'm done. Two soldiers, fine. We on the airfield and airspace. You are clear for takeoff. Have a good one. Thanks, Mo. Clear for takeoff. Check your bucket brake off. Check your trim set. Check your nozzle steering on. Maneuver. Damn it, half school face. Left turn out. That's what I'm up. Outflakes now. In the air and on air, the Renegade Aviator combines jet airshow performances and this radio show to promote aviation, excellence, overcoming obstacles, and achieving goals. Here he is, the Renegade Aviator, David Costa. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is David Costa, the Renegade Aviator. Welcome back to another fun-filled episode of the Renegade Aviator radio show. You know, each and every week we talk to air show performers, and this is all part of my May Day Save Our Air Shows mission that I've been on lately because with all the stuff going on, we've got our air shows shut down. Nobody's flying air shows, but a big part of this show is to bring you the air show performers, people in the industry, people that are demonstrating excellence, and this is a way for you to stay connected to us And you can find out more about my May Day Save Our Air Shows initiative at my website, renegadeav8r.com, renegadeaviator.com. And this week, I've got a two-for-one professional air show pilot and announcer, Steve Stavrakakis, flies wild thing and announces air shows. Steve, welcome to the Renegade Aviator radio show. Dave, thank you, and uh, thanks for all the guests for joining us today. Right on, man. There's a big benefit and something kind of unique in what you bring because you've got that unique relationship with the crowd because not only do you perform, but you also announce. So you see the air show from a very unique and different perspective. Tell us a little bit about of kind of what Wild Thing is all about, what you do at the air shows, and kind of how you got your start. I know it's a tall order, but let's just rock and roll. Yeah, well, on that note you just brought up, I kind of think that that does give me an advantage in the fact that I always say you can't describe 10 Gs if you haven't felt 10 Gs. And I have. I I actually have pulled 10 Gs a few times when I was flying my Blend 50, the original wild thing or one of the original wild things. And you really can't describe that. Whereas I felt 10 Gs. I've had smoke oil in my eyes. I've had the sweat in my eyes, the taste of smoke oil. And that's what I try and bring to the shows is I try and put our air show spectators in the cockpit with their favorite air show uh, pilot or their hero up there and let them know what positive G's feel like, what negative G's feel like, what that pilot is actually going through at that moment so that I can transform our groundbound spectators into the cockpit above them. That's outstanding. And what brought you full circle from uh, probably somebody like the rest of us? You know, this is what I tell everybody each and every week on the show. You know, we all started out as kids going to airports. What brought you from that kid probably going to an airport to now air show performer and uh, air show announcer? Well, I think the early influence on me was I was lucky enough to grow up in the country. 
and Howard Flory, Flory Industries, they make the almond harvesting equipment. His airstrip was kind of lined up with my folks' ranch. And so not only did we have him taking off and coming in and his personal airplanes, but they also, uh, we had crop dusters back in the days of the Stearmans when they were using those as the dusters. That was our alarm every uh, morning in the summertime with uh, the 450-horse Stearman crop dusters rattling the windows as they climbed out over our place every morning. So had that, that aviation influence. A close family friend, a high school buddy of my dad's was Bud Fountain, the Gold Coast Air Show fame. And as a child, my dad would always take us to see Bud fly whenever he was in town. He was basing had hot dusters in the Modesto area. But whenever he was doing one of the Gold Coast air shows at Modesto or Merced or one of the neighboring airports, we'd always go to see Bud. So, of course, Bud flew his P-51 Mustang. He had a 450-horse Super Steerman with uh, the wing walker on top. And then they had Skinny, which was a little... Uh, bare frame Piper Cub that they did a comedy act. Lynn Russell did uh, the comedy act on that one. So I had a huge influence of going to the air shows and seeing that. And that also parlayed into every afternoon or every evening watching uh, 12 o'clock high on TV. I remember my mom always saying, turn that TV off and, and get in here for dinner. <laughs> well, okay. Right after this next bombing mission here, mom. So that was my early influence there. And I can still draw a P-51 or a B-17 freehand, you know, as good as anybody just from watching that, having that imprinted in my mind as a child. So that's kind of where I got uh, my early interest in aviation was from going and watching Bud Fountain and those guys. And uh, then it kind of parlayed from there. So I'll, I'll let you kind of lead into the next segment here. We all had that star. We all had that dream, that passion. But a lot of people go through life, right? And they start off and they go, this is really cool. And it may not be aviation. It can be anything. But then there's people like you that took that extra step. And this is the reason why I like to talk to the air show performers, because it was more than a passion. There had to be, there was some catalyst as you were going through, you became a pilot and you went through these certain steps but what made that trigger point happen? We're going, I just don't want to watch anymore. I want to be out there doing it. What was that trigger point? I've always been uh, accused of being an overachiever. I had a mini bike when I was a little kid, and I shoveled stalls and worked in the orchards for the neighbors uh, to earn enough money to buy my first motorcycle, a little Hodaka 100. And I rode that for a couple of years, and I traded that for a Hodaka Superat that I started racing on. So I ended up with a 10-year racing career on motorcycles until my knees got so bad that the doctor told me, you can keep walking or you can keep racing, but you probably can't keep doing both. So I thought, wow, as hard as it was to leave the competitive side of motorcycle racing, I had to kind of reevaluate where I was going to go with my adrenaline rushes. And one foggy winter here in the Valley, you know, anybody's familiar with the Central Valley knows we get that Thule fog in the winter. And there's usually about two weeks we don't see the sunshine. So in one of those depressing, foggy days, I was going through the mail, and I saw this thing from the junior college, and it had private pilot ground school. Well, I had, for the last several years, had been riding my uh, street bike to the air shows, Livermore Air Show, Merced Fly-In, Columbia Fly-In, anything I could reach out on a motorcycle, I would ride my motorcycle in and watch all these things. And that one foggy day, I remember thinking, you know, I bet I could do that. So I signed up for the ground school. And I was working at the grocery store at the time. And so I would work uh, work at the grocery store. I'd go to ground school at nighttime. And the instructor, Otis Mercer, who was a huge influence on me, he was a B-24 Liberator pilot in World War II. And he was an instructor. And I remember uh, one day 
on my lunch hour at the grocery store reading Air Progress, and it had a big article on Satabrias, the Blanca Satabrias in there. I went to class that night, and I asked Otis, I said, you've got a Satabria, don't you? Which I, I thought was pretty cool, because Satabria's aerobatic spelled backwards, and yeah. I'd seen him at air shows. And so I asked him, I said, you have a Satabria, right? And his response was, yeah, you want to buy it? And I thought, well, I hadn't really thought about it, but now that you throw it out there, let's talk. So he invited me out to the airport uh, that Saturday, and I thought, well, if nothing else, I'm going to get a free ride in an airplane. So I get out there, and the airplane's in a million pieces. They just got to recover it. I thought, well, there goes my airplane ride. So I thought, well, keep things in perspective. Built enough models. You're good with tools. Let's take a look at it. So anyway, I took the ground school, went out, took the ride with Otis in one of his Cherokees, and ended up buying the Satabria. And I thought, well, now that I own an airplane, I should probably learn how to fly. So I changed over to night crew at the grocery store. So I could work nights and then at daytime, go out there and work on my Satabria. And I would get out there, and there'd be a list on the hangar wall of what to do. And so I would stand and do whatever I needed to do. And ended up getting that airplane. Uh, while I was working on that, I started taking lessons in their Piper Cherokees out there at the Turlock Airport. And I uh, soloed a Cherokee in seven hours. And then uh, an additional five hours, I'd added tail dragger rating in my own Citabria to it. So in 12 hours, I was uh, flying my own airplane. And, of course, I was reading Neil Williams' book and all the books on aerobatics. And so on the weekends, I would go up and experiment. And Dave, I got to tell you, there was a few times my knees were shaking so bad I wasn't sure I could land the airplane. I fell <laughs> out of rolls. I fell out of loops. I fell out of about anything you could. But again, as a 19-year-old, 20-year-old kid that had been racing motorcycles for 10 years, I had no fear. The concept of pulling a machine apart never ended the thought process at that time. So anyway, I survived the Satabria, and I uh, had my license at 44 hours, which I did get in the Satabria. And then uh, I wanted to go to the next steps. I wanted something unique. Actually, one of the inspectors had told me that I was starting to overfly the capabilities of the airplane. And if I still had it at the next annual inspection, we were going to have to go into the wings. I really didn't want to do that. So I thought, well, now's the time to uh, find another airplane. And I wanted something unique. So I ended up buying a Flynn 526F, which is a Czechoslovakian ex-military trainer from uh, the Great yeah, yeah, great airplane. Loved that airplane. Spent nine years with that airplane. And that's what I started doing air shows in. I had a total of uh, 400 hours. And it was uh, one of the toughest parts there was getting somebody to insure you as a new air show pilot with 400 hours total time. And the thing I had to explain to him was 300 of it was aerobatic. <laughs> so I uh, started air shows in 1985 in and that same year, we were at an air show and the announcers were so bad that some of the fellow performers said, hey, you've got a great voice, and you know more about what we're doing than what those guys do. How about announcing for us tomorrow? So I said, well, let's clear it with Airbus. And Airbus said, yeah, no problem. I said, so then I said, fly me first. So I flew first, parked my airplane, went up on the announcing stand and announced for my buddies, and I've been announcing uh, for 35 years as well. Really is amazing how one thing leads to the next thing leads to the next thing. But I'm scratching my head because it's it's pretty cool. 400 hours, right? When I look back, probably when you know both of us look back when you're a brand new pilot, 400 hours when you're a new pilot, that seems like a lot of flight time. And then looking backwards, you go, I can remember I was the best pilot in the world 
at 1,500 hours of flight time, and now at 15,000 hours of flight time, I realize I don't know a whole lot. (laughs) So it really is cool to take somebody, right? You're a brand new pilot stepping up, and, and I think people shy away, right? I don't have enough experience. I haven't been doing things long enough. But explain a little bit, 300 hours of aerobatics is way different than 300 hours of going to get a 100-hour hamburger. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Today, about the only cross-country flying I do is to go to an air show. Very seldom do I use the airplane for transportation. It's, uh, you know, I'll fly friends or, or the girlfriend will fly to, you know, to dinner or to lunch or something, of course. But most of my cross-country flying is going to air shows. So, yeah, you accumulate a couple thousand hours of flying time, but you've got 19,000 landings because you go up for 10 minutes, 15 minutes at a time. And then you come down, you rest, you have, you know, get some water back in, and you go up and you try and perfect what you didn't feel was right the first flight. So you can have four or five landings in a day and only about two hours worth of flying. But I remember um, when I was a student pilot still, I didn't have my license yet, and I would be out there practicing all the stuff I'd read all week long in the Satabrio loops and rolls and cubinates and everything. And and Otis, the old guy that the instructor that taught me to fly, remember one time saying, uh, yeah, that's all fine and dandy, and we enjoy it every weekend, but none of that's on your check ride. <laughs> so, okay, probably not. <laughs> so, so I had to buckle down and start doing all the required stuff to get the check ride. But yes, yeah, so I was doing, you know, by myself doing uh, air show equivalent, and that's what Otis was finally the one that told me, said, you realize that you're getting as good as the guys that you pay to go watch. And I said, oh, no, no, those guys are professional. He said, you look up professional in the dictionary, professional means they're getting paid to do what you do for us for free every weekend. And <laughs> it kind of sunk in. I thought, well, one thing I learned early on was when you get somebody that you trust, when you recognize how good they are at what they do, when they're an instructor or a mentor, when they tell you you're ready to do something, you need to believe in them. Because as a new person, you may not think that you're there, but... Yeah, somebody that is out there that's not on the roller coaster, they're on the ground watching the roller coaster, and they tell you, you're good enough to do that, you should try it. I always tell people, you need to do it, because they will recognize your abilities before you will think that you're ready to do them. Yeah, kind of like uh, when the instructor says, okay, pull the plane over, and say, well, what are we doing already? Well, you don't need me right. anymore. And it's like, and then you just got to remember, if the instructor says, you can fly that airplane without them, whether you think you can or not, you probably can't. Otherwise, they wouldn't be getting out of that airplane. So that kind of was a huge influence on me when Otis told me that I was as good as people I was paying to watch. You know, now's the time to do it. So I flew for Herb Ross at the time. He was who I got my initial uh, aerobatic card from, which allowed me to go up and then start doing the air shows. And then I, I was lucky enough after my first year of flying air shows, Bob Herendeen, who was just a, an amazing gentleman and pilot, Bob took me under his wing at one of the shows and came and flew with me. And he was the one to introduce me to outside loops and a few other things that I hadn't, you know, you know, been experimenting with at the time. So Bob Herendine was along with being just an absolute gentleman. He was a huge influence and mentor to me as far as in my early years and days. So it started out with this Linda, the, the 525F, survived uh, several years in that. I uh, actually did shows for uh, 600 hours in a Cessna Skymaster that was painted up as an O2. Still like those airplanes. <laughs> To this day, and then I uh, got one of my favorite airplanes of all time, which was the Slim 50. That was a single seat hot rod designed in 1975 over in Czechoslovakia, and that was a four time world champion airplane in uh, 75, and twice in the 70s, twice in the 80s. So I had uh, my first one, I went to Romania, 
first time I'd been out of the United States, went to Romania and traveled around a country that had only been free of communism for a year and a half and bought an airplane, set it home in a container, put it together, and that's what I started. That's the airplane that was dubbed the wild thing by the media. And I flew that one for two years, then I bought a brand spanking new one from the factory. And uh, I had a total of 16 years in the 50s before I finally uh, went strictly with the military airplane I'm flying now. Those Lynn 50s are really overlooked a lot. I had a chance to fly one. It is a neat airplane. And the airplane that you're flying now is neat because it's deceptively the IAR 823, right? I mean, that airplane is deceptively looks like a general aviation airplane that has a whole lot of sharp teeth to it. Pretty cool looking airplane. Yeah. Over there, you got to keep in mind that uh, they didn't have general aviation. So anything built in those communist countries was built with a purpose, either as a trainer, an ag plane, or a, a military plane. And the IARs, at least mine anyway, uh, mine was one of them that came out of a field in uh, Brasov, uh, Romania. Then they'd been sitting there for 20 years after the fall, of, you know, since the fall of Russia. And my airplane was actually a rocket training platform for the Romanian military where they would teach the, as the guys, they would usually start them out in gliders, and then they would work up to propeller-driven or engine-driven aircraft, and they would teach them to shoot rockets off of airplanes like mine. It was a rocket training platform. When they got the hang of that at the lower speed, then they would move them into the jets uh, where everything happened a lot faster. So, yeah, it's an authentic military airplane. It is a four-seater, so it's fairly utilitarian. And it was really hard to slow 50, but uh, when the economy took a dive at the, back in the, that period, and uh, I kind of had to downsize a little bit. It was like, keep the single-place hot rod, or you'd keep the four-place airplane that doesn't do anything great, but it does a lot of things good. And that's how I ended up with just the IAR. Outstanding. And it's the only one professionally flying in the world. Isn't that correct, when they come out and see you fly that? Yeah, as far as we know, I've seen videos of people in Europe and in France, I think, doing aerobatics in one. But as far as somebody actually using one of these as their professional airshell mount, uh as far as we know, I'm the only one doing it professionally in an IAR. There's a reason for it. They're, they're not all that aerobatic, so you really have to fly it with a gentle hand. But I did fly a Skymaster in aerobatics for several years, so you kind of learn what you can get out of an airplane without hurting it or hurting yourself in the process. And I think that's good for modern pilots to see. I know a lot of times, you know, as the crowd watches an air show performance, they're there to be entertained, and it really doesn't matter a lot of times what the airplane is. The fact that somebody's up there doing something with an airplane is really cool. But pilots get a unique appreciation for aircraft that were never really designed to be airshow birds, right? And so it's nothing against the extra 300s and the, the hot rods out there. But I know when I look up and I see an aircraft that is very similar to, to GA aircraft, that shows the GA pilots what they ought to be looking at doing is stick and rudder skills, basic flying skills that, quite frankly, are lacking in this day and age of the magenta line. I'm Mayday Save Our Air Shows, the Renegade Aviator Radio Show promotes air shows and air show performers. Renegade, AV, the number 8R.com. Click the Mayday link. We need your help. And I made it really simple and convenient. Do you like air shows? Aviation museums, high value, high energy entertainment. Air shows are some of the most popular spectator events around. Millions of people get enjoyment from these events, but they will be closed. They will be a thing of the past unless you help. Only three bucks a month, 
conveniently billed to your card will help us keep the air shows and the air show performers front and center on these radio stations. Mayday, save our air shows, renegadeaviator.com. When I went from the Zlin 50, where I was doing three forward somersaults four or five times in the routine, they had kind of perfected the Lomchevac. You can't fly a Zlin without perfecting a Lomchevac. So I do a, a three-tumble Lomchevac at least three times in my routine, usually at fairly low level. So I went from the wow factor of putting somersaults right in people's face to now all of a sudden you got this airplane with a high wing loading, a lot of dihedral in the wing, no inverted systems. It's like, how do you keep this entertaining for the fans? Because you've got to keep their attention span. If you lose their attention span, then you're not a bargain for them or the show. So what I did was I went from the, the wow factor being in your face as a wild thing to reintroducing my tribute to the American vet that I'd originally introduced in the Skymaster, where it's a flowing routine. I use a lot of colored smoke. At nighttime, I use the pyrotechnics. I've got uh, very intense uh, sounds, choreographed music and narration, where uh, we're kind of walking the people through thanking our veterans, past, present, and future, for what they've done for us. And, and you know, so it's a lot of intense narration theme music to kind of get the people, get the blood flowing, some intense script of a little kid reading a letter to his dad who was in the Desert Storm at the time. So I put all this together in my Tribute to American Vet presentation, and uh, I had a lot of people come up and say, Doc, on you, I can't keep a dry eye when I every time I hear narration or your music. So, But uh, yeah, it's just kind of a way of, of using an authentic warbird as a tool to, to honor our veterans who, who have made the ultimate sacrifice in many times. And uh, it's like I say, you know, when we were home, Watching 12 o'clock high as a kid, these guys were walking through rain jungles and everything else, uh, fighting enemies they can't even see. So this is kind of my way of using my air show platform and air show resources to, as a tool to give back to the people that gave so much to us. Right on. Kind of segues into what we're talking about with the Save Our Air Shows. This may, you know, I, I keep saying May Day, Save Our Air Shows. We can't let this level of energy lapse. And I get it. We've got stuff going on right now. It's a bad year for air shows. But the whole purpose of the focus of this show is to keep people kind of in tune. You can't experience an air show on video, although some of our friends in the air show industry are giving it a good try, right? Because they're, they're saying, look, we got to keep air shows in the forefront. But air shows are something you need to show up to. And your influence is both an announcer, right? It's the energy of the announcer, the energy of the performer. This is a valuable form of entertainment. And you hit the nail on the head. A big part of it is patriotism. But it's also that wake-up call, excellence demonstrated. You can do anything with your life. You can get out there, and you can be an air show pilot. You don't need to be one of the Blue Angels. That's, you know, great. We all love to watch the Blue Angels. But I think it's so needed today that I just don't want to see it slip away. Well, you know, the air show industry has just been knocked to its knees several times. I mean, I remember right after I got into it, you could pick and choose between three or four shows just here in the mid in central Northern California on any weekend. And then they had uh, the insurance crunch came in where the insurance price, the liability insurance went just haywire. And so a lot of the little shows couldn't afford the insurance to carry on the event anymore. And a lot of it was kind of unfounded because it wasn't necessarily because of actual crashes or 
disasters at that point. It was the perceived disaster by risk managers downtown at City Hall. So we got kind of got through that. And then after that, the time President Clinton had this base closure thing going on, and we lost several military. Every time a base closed at the time, people didn't realize, well, so did that air show. And we lost a ton of military shows here on the West Coast through Clinton's uh, base closures back then in the 80s. Then in 9-11, we have, you know, had the catastrophic attack, which uh, grounded aviation. It was essential uh, flying only, uh, scheduled airlines and law enforcement. So we were grounded there. And a lot of us that were just flying solely uh, as pilots back then, as airshow pilots, our livelihoods locked up in the hangar. We weren't allowed to leave the ground. Then, uh, then we get, get through that. And then in, in 2008, we had uh, the stock market crash and everything. So you think, well, how does that affect air shows? Well, it's huge when the people that you used to go to as a sponsor and get their name on your airplane to help pay your bills or get the name on the banners at the gate at the air show, when they lose their extra money to invest in advertising like this, that affected the shows. Uh, then, of course, we had the military se- uh, sequestration, uh, which canceled a bunch of shows. And now we've got this virus. It's like, thank goodness pilots aren't smart enough to know when to say when, because we just keep hanging in there. And that may be the saving grace for the air shows, is the fact that tenacity of the pilots, somebody that will take an airplane and go up and sweat and smell smoke oil and pull G's, won't let something like this stop you. If you've already done that much to get where you are, you won't let something like this stop you. Bingo. That makes a whole lot of sense in that because it really is, uh, I guess those of us that are doing this, we were just too stupid to ever quit. We just wanted to join the circus and have a good time. But it really is about giving back. And I know you do with your performance and, and your salute to the American vet and the passion and the energy you put into your announcing because it's all part of that entertainment and really is, right? It's some of the most efficient, effective entertainment out there. Try going to a pro football game. I'm sure you'll spend a lot of money. Try going to a NASCAR event. I love them both, but uh, for what, 25 bucks, I think is the average ticket at an air show. And there's a lot of them, especially our friends up at like the, you know, Truckee Tahoe air show where it's free to walk in the door. You just can't get any better than bringing the families out to these events. And we will be back. And you gave a really good perspective there. And I wrote them all down because I tend to focus like a laser beam. And the reason why I have a call sign Taz, I tend to spin in circles and get all wound up. (laughs) So that is a great perspective, right? We've been through this before. We're going to be back. We ain't going anywhere. Well, you know, another thing, too, is that when I am on the announcing stand, I try to entertain the people. It's like I tell them, you know, my job is to entertain, educate, and have them leave the show talking about what a great time they had. And if I can instill anything in these kids' heads, I always try and let the kids know that uh, you can do this. I used to be one of you. I was a a six-year-old kid hanging on the fence at Modesto Airport watching Bud Fountain. So I get it. And if the seed is planted, sometimes it's more than just planting the seed because I was, you know, I kind of did this on my own. I try and be that big brother, that helping hand that tries to get them to look into the fact that, okay, whenever I talk to you, they they take us a lot of times as performers. They'll have us go down and talk to career days and schools and things. And the one message I try and get through to all these kids are, well, first off, is that uh, first off, you can do this. It's not unacceptable there or uh, obtainable, but you don't have to be a pilot because a lot of, a lot of them don't want to fly. And so I try to yeah. explain to them everything that happens in the outside world 
happens on a military base. Give me a show of hands. What do you guys want to be? And there'll be, you know, kid one, one may want to be an engineer. One may want to be a firefighter. One may want to be, uh, you know, so you're always going to get the pilot. And then you're going to get the, a nurse or a doctor or a dentist. And I try to explain to them that all those happen on a military base. You can go to college. You can spend a couple hundred thousand dollars, five years of your life, only to get out with your diploma in your hand and go stand in line. Or you can go into one of the branches of the service. You can get your degree. You can get your education. You can get your trade. And not only do you get that all your education, your trade, your degree, they're going to give you the bed and sleep in, the clothes to wear, and the TV, or you do it. I mean, you can't beat that with a stick. I try and give that message to the parents and the kids as well. Because a lot of times the parents are thinking, I never thought of that. I can't afford to send my kids to college for the education they deserve. But this may be a way to accomplish that. So I try and use what I'm doing as both educational, entertaining and everything, explaining G-forces and taste of smoke oil and, and explain density altitude and, and what the numbers on the end of a runway mean. But I also try and both the children and the parents some direction on how being out there that day can change their entire lives. Absolutely. It's time and time again. I mean, we get calls every single week on this show of people that you wouldn't expect. And it's across all demographics of the stories of what inspired them at an air show. And it's sometimes the seemingly small things. It was that air show performer signing a picture or it was talking to somebody or meeting a war veteran, or it amazes me. And I know you and I have been going to air shows for a long time. You've been flying them far longer than me, but it just is an astounding thing to watch, which is why we just say, look, folks, you know, get out to your local airports, get out to these local air shows, go to the military air shows. We are coming back. Steve, how would people find out more about you, more about your air shows? How do they look you up and say hi? Well, the easiest way, because nobody can pronounce or say or spell my name, the easiest way is just go to www.wildthingairshows.com or just Google Wild Thing Air Shows and you're going to find me on the web. And there's not only there's personal numbers to contact me personally, if somebody wants to call and ask me questions, I'm, I'm always up for that. Uh, there's, uh, my schedule, unfortunately has a lot of, you know, canceled or postponed things after it right now. The things where we still got, uh, a lot of hope left for the rest of the summer. We don't know what direction this virus is going to take us. I don't quite understand why it would affect air shows for the fact you've got so much ramp and tarmac area that you could keep social distancing and still, you know, enjoy a great show. So I think there's a lot of opportunities for air shows versus, a stadium event, a football or baseball, where you have to go sit in a seat three inches away from your neighbor. Air shows do have the space to accomplish a public venue that a lot of sports events don't have. Our trucking show you mentioned, uh, one of the great shows here in the Northern California area and one of the most beautiful settings in the world, Truckee Tahoe Airport. Uh, that has been moved into September. It's the week before uh, the Reno National Championship Air Races which is a huge motorsports extravaganza. It's not an air show. It's not an air race. It's everything. If, if you guys haven't been to Reno Race Week yet, you really need to go to that. It, it's a, it's an amazing uh, a week up there. So I, I've been announcing, you know, this will be my 21st year. Hopefully the virus doesn't break our, our string here because I've been there 20 consecutive years so far. But we've still got a, a lot left that we should be able to salvage in the summertime Hopefully our government officials that are trying to do the right thing for us will understand that and look at the difference between a closed 
stadium or arena versus the open ramp of an air show area. I couldn't agree more. It is the ideal venue to get us back out and doing stuff again. It really is because we can take the proper precautions and individuals can take the proper precautions, right? So we all have our own risk and threat assessment level. I, you know, as a former Marine Corps special ops guy, mine might be slightly different than, you know, somebody who's an accountant and that's okay. At an air show, you can distance, you can stand next to people. Anyway, it is prime. We're coming back. This is a blip. This is not the end of the world. So as I promised on, I think the last show or the one prior to that is I was getting kind of doom and gloomy and spinning in circles again, you know, hair on fire. And now I'm going positive because you know what? The worst of this, I think, is over. And uh, it's time to start thinking again, getting out there and flying, man. I'm a total mayday, mayday, mayday. Times are tough right now. I get it. But if you can spare $3 a month, bill securely to your credit card, your $3 will go a long way to protecting a very American form of entertainment, air shows. This is Mrs. Renegade Aviator. And if you're like me, you remember going to air shows as a kid. Millions have been inspired in their lives by simply watching the excellence demonstrated by an air show performer. Inspirational, freedom, possibilities. That is what air shows are all about. And you have a very simple way to help. Go to renegadeaviator.com, click the Mayday link. It will take you to the page where you can securely support us. Mayday, mayday, mayday! Steve, I can't thank you enough for coming. Uh, give us your website one more time so people can uh, check you out. Really, wildthingairshows.com. You'll find me. What Just just Google wild things or wild thing air shows and you'll find me. All right, Steve Stavrakakis of Wild Thing Air Show. Steve, I really appreciate it, my friend, coming on today on the Renegade Aviator Radio Show. Stay in touch, and if I can be a service, give me a holler. Davey, anytime, buddy. My pleasure. Uh, thanks to you, all, all your fans out there for putting up with us. Because, uh, again, we're neurotic, and my friends are always threatening an intervention. But you know what? It seems to work. <laughs> it's a healthy addiction. I love it, man. Thank you very much, Steve. Have a good one. Thanks, Dave. Okay, three simple things. Number one, listen, like, and share this radio show, this podcast, this video. It's free, and it has a big effect because we're promoting aviation. We're promoting excellence demonstrated. We are promoting overcoming obstacles and achieving great goals. That's what we are. That's what air shows are. And that's what we're here to do. Mayday, save our air shows. Go to my website, renegadeaviator.com. Click the Mayday link and get involved as a member of my crew. That's number two. There's two things. Number three, easy, simple, and it goes a long way. When's the last time that you received a thank you card? Think about it. How powerful is a thank you card? I teach all my salespeople when I'm, when I'm doing corporate consulting and when I'm training people and customer service, a thank you goes a long way. So here's what I want you to do. Listen to me. I'm the renegade aviator. I know what I'm talking about. I'm not an amateur at this. I am a professional. <laughs> Trust me. I want you to look at every air show performer that we've had on the Renegade Aviator radio show, go to their website, 
find their list of sponsors, and write a thank you note or an email saying, thank you, Mr. or Mrs. Sponsor. We appreciate you supporting Airshow Performer X. Go to websites, Oshkosh websites, Sun and Fun, and all the local air shows that are out there, and go look at their list of sponsors from last year and write them a thank you note. Pick five or ten. It takes you no time. It will go a long way when we can let the sponsors know that we appreciate them. They will make the risk and spend the money to put on these great aviation events that you love to see. You want to see this airplane fly at air shows? You need to support all people in air shows. We're not in competition with each other. I benefit if anybody else benefits. We all benefit together, including you. So listen, like, and share. That's number one. Number two, Go to my website, renegadeaviator.com, and become a member of my crew. I'll tell you all about it once you go to my website. And number three, give notes of thanks to every sponsor, no matter who they are, no matter what performer they're representing or they're supporting, and no matter what air show that they're standing behind. Let them know that you appreciate them. I'll tell you what else. You know, each week we interview the top air show professionals anywhere. And you hear them each and every week. Go back and listen to the other shows. There's tons of performers that we've already spoken to. Go back and listen to those shows. They're great, great advice. Watch, listen, like, share, and rate us five stars. This is David Costa in the air. My TS-11 Iskra standing there right behind me. And on the air with you today, I am the Renegade Aviator. See ya. (laughs) 